0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to The World Today. I'm Sally Sara. This Monday, big promises in the budget, but will it be enough to relieve cost of living pressures and more rain for some flood-affected areas of Queensland and New South Wales? When will the downpour end?
2: Predictions aren't good at the moment. So any significant rainfall is going to... Raise our river heights. It's just a matter of keeping an eye on that and making sure that we're prepared.
1: First today to Canberra, where the treasurer Josh Frydenberg is putting the final final touches on his most important budget yet. He's hoping the economic blueprint will claw back votes ahead of an election campaign, which may be called within a week. There's a big focus on the cost of living, help for first home buyers, money for car parks and public transport, as well as a promised reduction in fuel prices. But will it have the desired result? For more, I spoke a short time ago to our political reporter, James Glenday, in Canberra. James, uh, good afternoon. With an election so close, how should we view this budget?
0: My personal view is that budgets are always uh, political documents, Sally, but this one especially so because it really is the launch pad for an election campaign yet again. And so anything that's promised past May only happens if the government wins that election. So I think the focus tomorrow is going to be on, one, the state of the books. That's probably the boring part. They're going to look terrible by historic standards because of all the COVID stimulus spending, but they're going to be better than forecast because of the quicker than expected recovery in the economy. And two, I think the other big point of uh, attention and discussion is going to be on all these short-term measures that will be introduced pretty quickly, like cutting the fuel excise between 10 and 20 cents a litre to reduce the cost of filling up cash handouts for people. These are the sort of things that an opposition in particular is unlikely to say no to, so close to an election. Though I think it was interesting this morning, Sally, to see the Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce trying to moderate expectations about what the government could actually do to ease the cost of living this morning. Here's what he had to say.
2: Now, you can't cure everything. You can assist, you can mitigate, but you can't fix because issues such as food prices are affected by the Ukraine, energy prices are affected by the Ukraine. Uh, A lot of these do go back to Mr Putin and the the outrageous murdering uh, process that he's going through.
1: That's the Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce there. James, will all of this be enough to really alleviate the cost of living pressure for many Australians?
0: Yeah, I think it's a really excellent question, Sally, because the government doesn't have, as opposed to decades ago, doesn't actually control a lot of the levers, you know, for example, interest rates uh, that uh, affect the cost of living. And uh, one of the risks of giving people cash to splash right now is that you can actually drive up demand for products. And if you drive up demand, then generally you can increase prices and inflation. And so, cash handouts, one thing. There's also a pledge to help first home buyers into the market. That could potentially drive up house prices. And there's going to be around $18 billion in infrastructure spending and all sorts of projects. The question is, with unemployment so low, do we have enough people to actually build this sort of infrastructure? Does that just become more expensive? The government says its answer to all this is that wages are going to rise faster than inflation, and so that workers, average workers, are, are better off in real terms. But as the opposition's Treasury spokesman, Jim Chalmers, keeps saying, that hasn't happened much in recent years. It's a big week here. I think uh, everybody knows that the election has to be called within the next couple of weeks. I think most people see this as a big taxpayer funded election campaign launch uh, from the government. If they cared about these cost of living pressures that they're talking about now, they wouldn't have come after people's wages for 10 years. And that's the uh, Shadow Treasurer, Jim Chalmers and Sally. I think if we wanted an insight into what Labor's election campaign is going to be on the cost of living, it's going to be Inflation is going faster than your wages, so you're worse off overall and you have been for a long time. I think that they're going to repeat that again and again and again.
1: That's our political reporter, James Glenday, there in Canberra. So what does the year ahead look like for voters who are eager for some economic security after two years of pandemic upheaval? Daniel Wood is the CEO of the Grattan Institute.
3: I think for a number of reasons, as you say, it is um, very unusual circumstances, so certainly in terms of the labour market, we've got unemployment at, at 4% and may well go down to have a 3 in front of it in, in coming months. So that that will be the first time in decades. Uh, we are on the other side of a, a pandemic and we have racked up sizable amounts of debt. Certainly less emphasis on trying to get the budget back into surplus. Uh, and we also have the challenge of rising price levels across the economy. So we, we talk a lot about petrol prices, but we're also seeing rising pressure in, in foods and other areas. So it's a very kind of... Um, unusual mix of factors. And and the Treasurer will be trying to walk the line between recognising some of those cost of living pressures, but without putting too much money into the economy and and stimulating further price rises. When you add on top, you've got an election coming as well. Uh, It is a bit of a, a potent mix. What
1: will be the dilemma for the government of trying to stimulate some growth and recovery in some areas, but not overcook the economy in others?
3: Well, really, the risk is if they start to put money back into the economy, so that could be money into people's hands through through cash payments, it could be direct investments in things like infrastructure, you risk overheating the economy and, and pushing prices up further. So, uh, even though you may be doing some of those things to try and compensate people for the, the pain that they're feeling in terms of higher prices, the risk is really that you stimulate prices rise further and then the Reserve Bank, when it's looking at that, may, for example, bring forward um, what we expect to be some interest rate rise later in the year.
1: So for, a, for an average family, what are the numbers telling us about what the next year ahead might look like with things like uh, unemployment, interest rates, uh, mortgages, the housing market, the chances of trying to to get a job and get a pay rise? How does it kind of look for the next 12 months?
3: On the employment front, the numbers look strong over the next 12 months. So you're much more likely to be in a job and to get the hours you want than any time in the past, um, well, past decades really. So certainly likelihood of being in work is stronger. Uh, Unfortunately, in terms of living standards though, the forecasts are that, that things will go backwards so that wages are not keeping up with the rising cost of living and particularly things like fuel costs and rents, uh, which are rising faster than wages. So, uh, people more likely to be in work, but will feel the squeeze in terms of their living costs. Uh, We expect to see um, the Reserve Bank start to move on interest rates uh, probably later this year. uh, That will also uh, create a bit of a challenge for for some households, uh, particularly those that have moved into the housing market in in more recent years and have probably taken on quite significant amounts of debt to do so.
1: There was a lot of discussion with the budget last year about the gender aspect, about whether uh, women in the economy were being served well by the budget when it came to um, employment and, and other issues. How important do you think that will be this time around?
3: Well, I think it's incredibly important, but I'm not Really, seeing evidence in the the pre-budget leaks that there's going to be anything in particular to address it. Um, so, you know, if we want to talk about cost of living pressures, uh, if we look over the decade, childcare has been the the fastest area of, or second fastest area of growth in in prices. The government has moved to address some of the highest out-of-pocket costs, but there is still a significant challenge there. And I would certainly argue that in a world where we're We've got tight labour markets. We want more people to participate in, in the labour market. That making childcare more affordable to enable, particularly mothers that would like to work more, to do so would be a fantastic economic measure as well as a measure that would really boost women's economic security. I suspect we're not going to be hearing uh, about that, and I, I think that would be a, a real missed opportunity in this budget.
1: That's Daniel Wood there, the CEO of the Grattan Institute. The competition watchdog has a new boss, and for the first time in the ACCC's history, it's a woman. Former corporate lawyer Gina Cass Gottlieb has a big agenda, which includes maintaining the pressure on digital giants such as Facebook and ensuring that consumers are protected. Our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan, caught up with the new ACCC boss, and we spoke earlier. Peter, good afternoon. Uh, Apart from being the first woman in the top job, Gina Cass Gottlieb is also the first corporate lawyer to be chair. What are her big agenda items?
4: Well Sally, uh, firstly there's a fair bit of baggage from previous clients including the media tycoon Rupert Murdoch and his son Lachlan, uh, where in a previous life as a top corporate lawyer she once oversaw the Murdoch family trust and many of the Murdoch family's tax affairs in the United States, which angered the former Labor Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. Miss Cass Gottlieb told me All Murdoch ties have now been cut. Uh, The ACCC has a strict conflict of interest policy and there'll be no special access for former clients, uh, making the point that she's acted for other media companies, including the ABC and SBS. Uh, She's also monitoring companies that greenwash their policies, in other words, making claims about green credentials in the renewables world that simply aren't true. But right now, the new ACCC chair, succeeding Rod Sims, who's just retired, is on the lookout for companies Companies using cover from the COVID crisis, recent floods and anxiety about the war in Ukraine to unlawfully jack up prices for petrol and food.
3: We are certainly hearing the concerns from consumers in relation to petrol price, in relation to groceries, wherever there are misleading and deceptive complaints that they can bring them to the Commission's attention.
4: In a previous life, you've acted for News Corporation, Rupert Murdoch and his son, Lachlan Murdoch. Is that an image problem for you or maybe a conflict given concerns in Australia about media diversity and the power of News Corporation?
3: So firstly, all links are severed. I see no conflict. I have no ongoing position, no ongoing retainers. This is my full-time job and my absolute commitment.
1: That's the newly appointed ACCC Chair, Gina Cass Gottlieb, uh, speaking there with Peter Ryan. And Peter, you're looking at the federal budget. Will cuts to the fuel excise and other handouts do much to help households or could they actually hurt the recovery?
4: Well, Sally, it's a pretty tricky balance. Uh, cutting the fuel excise might make political sense with a tight election ahead, but it makes little difference given global oil prices are market forces out of our control. And those prices remain volatile, lower at $117 US a barrel right now for Brent crude. Just a week ago, Brent crude was below $100 US a barrel. This uh, pledge might be for targeted and temporary relief, but that extra money in the economy could also add to inflation and perhaps tempt the Reserve Bank to raise interest rates ahead of schedule. On the big numbers, the deficit is tipped to fall to $70 billion thanks to surging commodity prices, but still deficits as far as the eye can see. Government debt is tipped to remain massive and eye-watering because of the pandemic spending, but will peak at just under a trillion dollars. A few economists warned that without urgent budget repair from whoever wins, that debt could double by the early 2030s as borrowing costs rise.
1: That's our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan. On ABC Radio, you're listening to The World Today. Well, it's the last thing that flood-affected residents of Queensland and New South Wales want or need is rain. It's been a month since the so-called rain bomb exploded, dumping more than a metre of rainfall in some areas in just three days. But forecasters are warning that another slow-moving trough could wreak havoc a man has died in his car on Queensland's Darley Downs as after being swept away by floodwaters. Rachel Mealy reports.
5: It's exactly a month since lives, livelihoods and homes were swept away by rising rivers and raging floodwaters in northern New South Wales and southeast Queensland. Now the Bureau of Meteorology says more danger lies ahead. Lismore Mayor Steve Krieg is urging flood-weary residents across the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales to pay attention to the risks.
2: It's the last thing we need Um, at the moment is these rain bombs that are coming down, so hopefully they'll miss our catchment areas and we'll we'll stay safe, but predictions aren't good at the moment. So any significant rainfall is going to raise our river heights. It's just a matter of keeping an eye on that, and making sure that we're prepared. If, if we do get that moderate to major flooding, we need to make sure that our residents and our businesses are prepared.
5: A severe weather warning's been issued for the entire region, with warnings that up to 200 millimetres could fall in the next two days. Steve Krieg says many in his area are only now resurfacing after last month's devastation, and many remain in temporary housing.
2: The sad thing is That, you know, we've got some businesses that have opened this morning after four weeks of really deep cleaning. We've got people that have moved back into their homes after, you know, that month long cleaning process and the fear of. Packing it all up again is very real at the moment.
5: Scott McLennan is from the New South Wales SES. He says aircraft, vessels, personnel, and vehicles are on standby to assist. From tonight, those flash flooding points, those low culverts, those river, those areas where uh, flash flooding does occur, they going to, it's going to happen there. Whereas river rain flooding, we're expecting will probably start taking place from
1: tomorrow onwards.
5: The SES says it's again expecting minor to moderate flooding in many areas. Roads have been cut already because of rising creeks and land slippages. Scott McLennan says people should be prepared to leave early and have somewhere safe to go. It's very raw for a number of our smaller communities, not just Lismore, but Corakai, Woodburn, Broadwater, South Ballina, the... The list is quite significant. Even along the Clarence Valley, we're seeing Southgate, Lawrence, Almara, McLean. Those communities, where they are now, it's still quite raw and traumatised. But we cannot control what comes down from the sky. We can only control our actions and our reactions. In Queensland, the unwelcome rain is falling across a vast tract of land. Phelan Hanafi is a senior forecaster at the Weather Bureau.
1: All been driven by a coastal trough, and it's very much where that coastal trough digs in on the coast that's going to dictate who gets those uh, locally very heavy or even locally intense falls as well. But there's certainly a risk for Brisbane during during um, this afternoon.
5: Emergency crews have carried out four water rescues across the Darling Downs already today. One man died when his car was swept into floodwaters near Kingsthorpe on the outskirts of Toowoomba. Toowoomba's Mayor Paul Antonio is urging people not to drive through floods.
2: I think it's absolutely critical that people make their own judgments if they see water ahead of them. Just do not. If it's flooded, don't do anything about it. Don't go anywhere. And uh, we don't. We've had enough tragedy in this area with people dying in floods. We certainly don't want any more.
5: In Dolby, further west from Toowoomba, the Mile Creek is on the rise. Local resident Shirley says the rain started overnight.
6: Came down in buckets. We had four inches. It's supposed to be six in Dalby,
5: so there'll be a lot of water around. The SES in both states is warning all residents to stay alert for warnings.
1: That's Rachel Mealy reporting there. Overseas now, Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky has told Russian journalists he's prepared to discuss adopting a neutral status as part of a peace deal with Russia. The development comes as residents of Mariupol begin returning to what is left of their shattered homes. And attacks on the Ukrainian city of Lviv, which had been a safe haven, continue. Oliver Gordon reports.
7: Across the besieged Ukrainian city of Mariupol, residents are surveying the damage to their homes. The southeastern coastal city has been hit particularly hard by Russian attacks. It's been declared a humanitarian disaster with hundreds of people killed, thousands displaced and resources scarce.
5: This is ours, all what is left.
7: Elderly woman Valentina is entering her apartment, which was shelled in recent attacks on the city. She's just come back to take a look.
5: It struck here and destroyed everything. Here, see, a shell hit here. A bathroom and a toilet were here. And here's the bedroom, all that's left.
7: Her apartment is mostly rubble, but remnants of her past life remain.
5: Here's my little sewing machine. I'm damaged.
7: As residents like Valentina come back to their homes for the first time, Ukraine's leader is canvassing a way forward. President Volodymyr Zelensky has told Russian journalists he's ready to discuss adopting a neutral status as part of a peace deal. What this exactly means is unclear, but it could mean that Ukraine would not join a military alliance such as NATO as long as it had the guarantee of security from other countries such as the US, European powers and even Russia. President Zelensky says such a pact would have to be put to a referendum in Ukraine first and is made clear that no peace deal would be possible without a ceasefire and troop withdrawals. Security guarantees and neutrality, non-nuclear status of our state, we are ready to go for it. This is the most important point. It was the main point for the Russian Federation, as far as I can remember. And if I remember correctly, this is why they started the war. Zelensky told Russian journalists Ukraine refused to discuss certain other Russian demands, such as the demilitarization of the country. He's also ruled out trying to recapture all Russian-held territory by force, saying it would lead to a third world war. Instead, he said he wanted to reach a compromise over the eastern Donbass region, held by Russian-backed forces since 2014. I understand it's impossible to force Russia completely from Ukrainian territory. It would lead to Third World War. I understand it, and that is why I'm talking about a compromise. Go back to where it all began, and then we will try and solve the Donbass issue, the complicated Donbass issue. But as the war of words continues, so too do Russian attacks. Back-to-back airstrikes in the Lviv region have shaken the city that has become a haven for an estimated 200 100,000 people who fled bombarded areas the next round of face-to-face talks between Ukraine and Russia is set to take place in Turkey from March 28 to 30. In a telephone call, Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan told Putin a ceasefire and better humanitarian conditions were needed in Ukraine. And in the U.S., where the White House continues to walk back Biden's comments calling for regime change, protests have emerged supporting such calls. Speaking at a rally in Washington, D.C., Ukrainian ambassador to the U.S. Oksana Makarova, had this to say to demonstrators who'd gathered at the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. The thin red line between the Right and wrong, has been drawn in blood of Ukrainian children and mothers, teachers and students, doctors and reporters, including brave American reporters, who on the first line today, together with Ukrainian reporters,
1: showing the truth to the world. That report there from Oliver Gordon. Finally today to the pandemic, and with winter approaching, there's concern that the colder months will drive cases higher and compound disruptions in homes, schools and offices. That's why some experts are calling for a fourth vaccine to be rolled out to the general population. Matt Banford reports.
8: After a tumultuous few years, most people are trying to put the pandemic behind them, but businesses are still feeling fragile. Dominique Lamb is from the National Retailers Association.
6: Coming into winter, there's certainly a sense of, I think, dread as to what that's going to mean. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, they still have all of the same costs happening, whether it's, you know, leasing and tenancy, whether it's stock or amongst other things, right, that they have to make sure that they continue to earn. And, of course, with colder weather coming chance or, or likelihood of a new variant coming. I mean, there's definitely nervousness within the industry.
8: With double vaccination rates above 95% and restrictions easing around the country, it's easy to forget how disruptive COVID can be. But Dominic Lamb says her members remain on edge.
6: So often these businesses may have only a business owner or one to two staff with them if they're micro business. And, and if someone in their family contracts COVID, it means their entire business and income Simply stops. Schools are
8: also struggling. The Australian Education Union's Karina Haythorpe says rising
6: infections are leading some to close. The situation is quite bad right across the country. There's a overwhelming sense of exhaustion. Um, it's been an incredibly challenging start to the year. Very disrupted in terms of learning, of course, with. Um, Many uh, outbreaks, and uh, we're now seeing the the, the direct result um, of increased COVID infections, which is that schools are unfortunately having to close uh, for periods of time.
8: Tens of thousands of Australians are still being diagnosed with COVID every day, and with the winter flu season coming, there's calls to offer the general population a fourth vaccine. Currently, only those aged over 65 or in a vulnerable category can access it. Professor Nathan Bartlett is the head of viral immunology and respiratory disease at the University of Newcastle. As we roll towards winter uh, and the the time between the third booster increases, uh, we know that people's vulnerability to more severe disease as a result of COVID 19 is going to increase. And so uh, I think people should be given the option um, to top that up again. He says it's a smart way of easing the pressure over winter. I mean, we're already seeing significant disruptions across essentially every facet of society as a result of people um, being laid up um, ill uh, with the infection or as a result of being in close contact. Now, I know... Um, close contact rules will probably be relaxed um, uh, moving forward, but it still doesn't reduce the, the burden of the actual disease itself. Lieutenant General John Fruin is leading the nation's vaccine task force and says the next few months are crucial to getting vulnerable people protected.
2: This uh, winter dose is really about protecting our most vulnerable uh, and making sure that uh, those who are over 65 or Indigenous people over 50 or, or people with a immunocompromised you know, uh uh, situations, they, they need to come forward and get this dose.
8: But he doesn't think a fourth jab is necessary for everyone
2: yet. What a Target are telling us is that isn't what the, the science is showing them. Again, the, the winner dose, the fourth dose is important for those uh, really vulnerable. What's what's really important for the general population is the, is the booster, that third shot.
8: While she doesn't support mandatory vaccination, Dominic Lamb says more people should be given the option of getting a fourth jab
6: we've always held the view that retail workers are frontline workers. So if it was open to other categories, absolutely, we would support it.
1: Um, and, you know, we would absolutely welcome it. That's Dominic Lamb from the National Retailers Association, ending that report from Matt Banford. That's all from the World Today team for this Monday. The PM team will be along tonight. We'll be back again the same time tomorrow. I'm Sally Sarah. Take care.
5: I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. As the number of Ukrainians fleeing their homeland continues to grow, the unique billeting scheme in the UK has been so well received, officials can barely keep up with demand. At least 150,000 Brits have offered to open their homes to desperate Ukrainians, and the government has said it won't set a cap on the numbers of refugees it will take. Today we hear the moment two of these families meet for the first time. Look for ABC News Daily on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.